You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Hey, Rico time. It's funny, I now use Rico. As a verb, I say to Hoff, what time are we recoing tonight? Let's Rico. Let's Rico all night long. Hey, welcome to <laughs> Hoffman. Uh, you should like and subscribe and download this podcast just so that whenever there's a new Rico Bronia, it just pops right up there for you. Because you never know when there's going to be a new Rico Bronia. Maybe there's Mets news. Maybe there isn't Met news. Maybe we feel like talking. Obviously, we guarantee you two Ricos per week, usually coming to you sometime on Sunday and sometime late Wednesday night, Thursday morning. But as there is breaking news and as the season begins and we're not that far away from spring training, you could expect more and more and more Rico Bronias. Let me give you a preview because there's a lot to touch on. Buck Showalter had a few things to say, did a little media tour. Brandon Nimmo clarified his position in 2024. David Stearns may have given us a hint on a Pete Alonzo contract extension, and the Mets are linked to J.D. Martinez, plus they made a bullpen addition. So we'll address all of that, plus your emails, a lot of reaction to our rewatch, Game 7 of the 2006 NLCS. So we'll open up the email bag as well at thericob at gmail.com. Let me start off with Chitaro Fujinami, because that was a move that was made a few days ago, and I get it, I get it. You go to Baseball Reference, And you see the ERA and you see the walks and you see the numbers and it's very blah. That's kind of the impression maybe you got. This signing of Fujinami intrigues me. And I think we may have mentioned his name briefly at the beginning of the offseason as a potential bullpen target because Fujinami throws very hard. He was adapting to a new role out of the bullpen where he was better, but still not perfect. And I think with the Fujinami, you've almost got, here's my comparison. You have clay. You've got like this really interesting, mushy clay. And if it can be molded the right way by Jeremy Hefner and this Mets pitching lab, Fujinami could be a gold mine. He could be a gold mine. Now, I preface could be. You know, I'm, I'm certainly not guaranteeing this is going to happen. But you're talking about a guy that throws very, very hard. So the Mets have added a guy who could hit 100 miles an hour on the radar gun, which is nice, considering you now compare that with Edwin Diaz, who also throws 100 miles per hour on the radar gun. And you got a guy with a lot of good raw stuff. So I like this signing. I think this has high reward potential. So the Mets, over the last week, week and a half, they bring back Adam Adovino, they add Jake Diekman, who can get lefties and righties out. So he's more of a crossover guy and pitched really well with Tampa down the stretch last year. And now you add 
a sort of project in Fujinami. This Met bullpen is diverse. It's got a lot of different kinds of arms who throw a lot of different kind of pitches. You've got some high-velocity guys. And I have to admit, I don't think I always come across as an ultra-positive Met fan. I, I try to think I'm a realistic Met fan. There'll be times I'm really negative. There'll be times I'm sort of positive. I kind of feel good about this bullpen. I really do. And, and keep this in mind. Most bullpens are not super pens. They're not, hey, I added this closer to go along with that closer, and this guy's established, and that guy's established. Like a lot of bullpens come into seasons with questions. And then your hope is you get positive answers to those questions. This met bullpen, and if you go back about a month ago, we did a podcast where we talked about the state of the met bullpen, and that was prior to adding Adam Adovino, Jake Diekman, and Shintaro Fujinami. The Mets now have six, I don't want to say more to locks, but close to locks for their bullpen. And figure there's going to be eight arms. So now you've got six guys who you could kind of place in there as being part of this bullpen. And think about each guy and how different they all are. And differences is good. You don't want the same pitcher coming out of the bullpen over and over again. You've got Edwin Diaz closing games out. You've got Brooks Raley coming back. Then you've got the new additions. Jorge Lopez, Drew Smith, he's coming back, but certainly a lock. Jake Diekman, Shintaro Fujinami, and Adam Adovino. In fact, that's seven locks. So this bullpen now, and it's so funny because if you go back and listen to that recall from a month ago, we were talking about all the questions in this bullpen. Now you got seven guys who are pretty much locks. You know, barring a trade of Drew Smith or barring an injury, of course, Seven guys of the eight, because you're probably looking at eight relievers overall that are locks for this bullpen. Diaz, Raley, Adovino, Smith, Jorge Lopez, Jake Diekman, and now Shintaro Fujinami. I, I'm intrigued by this bullpen. I think it's got a chance to be good. It's funny with Fujinami. I remember him making a start against the Mets very early in last season's uh, campaign. He was on Oakland at the time, and he had gotten off to a brutal start. I think his first two starts were just awful he makes his third major league start against the Mets and actually pitched well like he shut our offense down for six innings the Mets rallied in that game they ended up winning three to two I think they rallied against Fujinami in the sixth inning but we we quickly figured out he's not a starter at least that's not what you're going to get the best out of him with in major league baseball also it was his first year over from Japan so now you got year two you got a bullpen roll and again, hopefully this Met Pitching Lab does some numbers and does some magic with them. So I just start there. I feel decent about this bullpen. I do, going into the start of spring training, which is about a week away. Do you share that sentiment, Pete, or are you basically like, what the what the F happened to Evan? Why is he so optimistic? I, li I like your optimism. Optimism is not a bad thing, especially before the season starts. Like, you have to have a little bit of it. I don't think I'm the as hell? high. Like, you're talking what about the hell kind of Smith pause was like that? What the hell was it? That was the most like, that was the pause of doom. That was the pause of, I don't believe anything Evan just said. Let me think of how I'm going to be nice. <laughs> Listen, in, rea in reality, retrospective, the whole thing here, I, I like some of the additions. I'm not ecstatic about them because there's no addition where it's like, my God, that's a lot. That to me is a lot. You're bringing in Fujinami, whose ERA was close to seven. He yeah. may throw 100 miles per hour, but that means when they hit the ball, it goes 120 miles per hour off the bat. 
So I, I it's not like we're sitting here and, and jumping over, you know, jumping through hoops, being like excited about this bullpen. Yeah, right I now. think you got to keep this in mind. Most bullpen arms, you know, you go out and you add a sign, you sign a guy like Josh Hader, which is the abnormal kind of example. Um, most bullpen arms don't come to you that kind of proven. I'll give you um, and it's not a great comparison, but it's an attempt, an attempt at a comparison. I don't know if you remember Koji Uehara. Koji Uehara was a guy who's probably best remembered for, you know, pitching well for the Boston Red Sox. Um, he was there for about four years and had this one incredibly dominant season in 2013. The year they actually, one of the years they won the World Series, the year Koji was there. And he got Cy Young votes. He was just like completely unhittable. And he was 38 years old at the time. So it's a little bit different age-wise. But Koji Uehara came over and initially was a starting pitcher. He went to the Baltimore Orioles in 2009, and he was a starter. And he he's a different kind of pitcher than Fujinami because Fujinami's big issue is control. Uehara did not have a control issue. But my point is, he came over as a 34-year-old Japanese starting pitcher and was as mediocre as can be. And in year two, was moved to the bullpen. And put together a really solid, like, five-year major league run as a reliever with Baltimore, ended up in Texas, and then obviously became most known in Boston, specifically in that 2013 season. But he ended up putting together a really good career as a bullpen arm. And, again, they're not the same pitcher in any way, like, their concerns. I'm just saying that I think Fujinami being moved to the bullpen may have opened up the best of what we're going to see out of him, similarly to Uehara when he came over back in 2009 with Baltimore. So he's not a sure thing. And like I said, you see the baseball reference page, it's going to make you sick. But I do think he's got really good potential for this bullpen. So that's number one. Mets make that addition. And I think they're pretty much done with their pen. Now we wait on the bat. And I've made very clear that I think they should add a bat. I think there's an importance to adding a bat. And I think that, by adding a designated hitter, you still allow an opportunity for Mark Vientos. And I'll explain to you how, okay? Mark Vientos is going to get at-bats at third base. Like, Brett Beatty's going to get to play, but every every single day? No. I mean, there'll be days where Vientos can get at-bats. There will be days where Vientos DHs. If you end up signing J.D. Martinez, which they're not necessarily close to doing, but it's nice to see them linked to J.D. Martinez, Vientos can get another day or two per week at DH. He may get a day or two per week at first base if you want to keep Pete Alonso fresh. I don't think they're really intrigued by playing much of Mark Vientos in the outfield, but you know what? I'd give him an outfield glove and stick him out there once a week. I think there are opportunities. But J.D. Martinez of the available guys as a bat that they could add is the best one out there. Now, it seems that the Mets are basically doing bargain hunting, which I don't care about. You go at a bat, I don't care how much you paid them, that the Mets are waiting for these prices to come down. And the fact we're in February, the fact we're a week out of spring training, which is reality, we're a week away from spring training, which is nuts concerning how many big free agents are still out there. I think the hope is, well, if J.D. Martinez's price can come down, boy, doesn't that fit? Doesn't that make a lot of sense? And I think it does. And I don't care about the price because it's a one-year deal. So the difference between the Mets spending 
15 million on him or 9 million on him. That'll make a difference to me. I got to be honest with you, you know, as a fan, as a season ticket holder, just tell me they signed JD Martinez. Like the Mets saving a few shekels on a one-year deal just doesn't impact how I feel. Now I know that maybe that's what they're waiting for, but I would feel it's just me speaking. Obviously every Met fan may feel a little different about this. I was arguing about this in my Mets text chat the other day where I said to my guys, I said, you had JD Martinez. I feel very different about this offseason. I feel better about this team going into 2024. I can almost rationalize success easily or easier by adding that bat because that bat does so much. It adds a little bit more certainty. It gives Pete Alonso protection. So it changes my view on this team. If they don't and they go into opening day and spring training with what we think it's going to be at this point, which is essentially what Mark Vientos and DJ Stewart platooning a DH. Yeah, things can still go right. They can still win 85 games, but you need more things to go right. So I was happy to see them at least attached attached to J.D. Martinez, but they got to seal the deal. They got to go get them. They got to cross the finish line, and I don't know if they are. Are you going to feel it's one one year too late if they get him, though, Pete? Yeah, I mean, for J.D. Martinez, I think it's too too late, but – if you add him, there does come that veteran leadership that you hope that a team like this with some younger, talented players like Alvarez and Vientos and some other people, you do hope that maybe at least that is an addition as on top of what his production is at the plate. Yeah, well, we'll see if they get it done. I, I hope they get it done. Where's my optimism right now? It's probably somewhere in the middle. Let's get to Nemo. So Brandon Nemo did an interview on John Heyman's podcast and said a lot of, you know, sort of interesting things. I mean, he basically gave Pete Alonso a back massage. You know, he's great. He's great in the clubhouse. I hope we keep him. He wants to be here. That's all nice to hear. I just want that contract extension done. You know, I'm, I'm sick and tired of the back massages. But Brandon Nimmo was asked to explain, hey, what position are you going to play? And I'll give you one clip, but basically some backstory before we play the clip. Nimmo mentioned that David Stearns reached out to him prior to them signing Harrison Bader to just inform him, hey, you know, I really prioritize defense. There are some pretty good defensive center fielders out there. Just want to get your sense on your feeling of us pursuing those guys, which I thought was interesting because sometimes you don't know, like, does a team president or GM reach out to players and inform them like what their plans are for the offseason? Do they ask permission or do they just say, hey, we may get someone who's better than you defensively in center field. You're moving to left field. So I always guess that you're basically presenting it as what do you think, but you already know what you're going to do. Like, hey, we may get a center fielder. What do you think? But you already know we're moving your ass to left field. So I thought that was interesting that David Stearns at least uh, preemptively talked to Brandon about it. And then they signed Harrison Bader. And here's Nimmo's kind of view on what is he this year? Does he play center field? Does he play left field? Does he play both? Um, it's going to be totally up, up to you whether you want to you know, be able to go in both directions and play center field and left field. Um, or if you want to, you know, just stay in one position, we're fine with that too. So, um, I said, you know what, let's, let's go to spring training. Let's see how, how this all works out. 
Um, and, you know, we'll start to get a better feel when we all start to play together and everything. And, uh, but I'm, I'm completely open to making the team better in whatever capacity that, that is. So whether that's in center field for me or whether that's in left, um, it's still to be, you know, to be seen. Um, but uh, it's also going to come down to how Carlos uh, Mendoza wants to write the lineup each and every day. So here's what we got from this. Brandon Nimmo gets to decide, hey, should I shift between left and center or am I better off just sticking in left field? So once Drew Gilbert gets up here, assuming Drew Gilbert does get up here, and assuming Drew Gilbert is what we hope he is, Brandon Immo is a left fielder. But there is a scenario earlier in the season where Brandon Immo is valuable in center field. I'll lay it out for you. His name is DJ Stewart. Now, Harrison Bader, to me, ideally is best used as a fourth outfielder. And let's say he's hurt, or let's say he's just not hitting right-handed pitching, which he hasn't really done throughout his major league career. An outfield alignment of DJ Stewart, Brandon Immo, and Starling Marte has you better off with Brandon Nimmo in center field. So I think that at least in the first half of the year, assuming that there is some kind of platoon between Stewart and Bader, which is the way I would do it, doesn't mean Carlos Mendoza is going to do it, but I'll tell you right now, it's how I would do it. That makes sense where Brandon Nimmo plays center. You don't want to stick DJ Stewart in center field. You've got a worse defensive outfield. But I think if DJ is only playing designated hitter because they didn't add a DH. So you're seeing more of DJ at DH or DJ and right because Starling Marte is getting a day off or Starling Marte is DHing. Then I think if Tyrone Taylor or if Harrison Bader's playing center field, then Brandon Immo sticks in left field. And when Drew Gilbert comes up, Brandon Immo sticks in left field. So I think it, it sounds as if they're giving him the option. Are you comfortable shifting between the two? And I hope he says yes, because again, on those days where your outfield is Stewart, Nimmo, and Marte, I'd want Nimmo in center field. But it, but it, it gave you kind of a glimpse into the approach that the Mets have, which is A, they're putting a premium on defense, which I don't disagree with. And then B, it's almost as if they're empowering the player a little bit in terms of, okay, how do you feel? And we've seen this before where guys – you know, certain guys are not comfortable shifting between positions. It's a credit to Jeff McNeil that he's been so good at it. Jeff McNeil, throughout his Met career, and I know he didn't have the greatest year last year. The year before that, the guy's winning a batting title. And we've had a little bit of that with Jeff, start and stop years. But it never seems to be impacted by the position he's playing. Now, some guys prefer just to stick at one position. You know, so we'll see what ends up happening in spring training, but... I've already laid it out that there are scenarios and there are days where the Mets are better off with him playing center field. But I think more times than not, he's going to make sense in left field. And if the long-term plan, and by long-term, I mean hopefully by June or July, is that Drew Gilbert is at the major league level, and everything I've read is that he's a pretty sturdy defensive center fielder, Brandon Nemo ends up in left field. So that's where that stands in the outfield alignment. Now let's get to Buck Showalter. Buck Showalter decided to do a couple of interviews recently, including uh, with BT and Sal, Pete Show, and he also went on foul territory. And look, for the most part, Buck didn't say anything. And I listened to both interviews, and no, it's not a knock, obviously, on BT and Sal or the guys on foul territory. You try to get him to say something, you don't say much. And I think a lot of that is Buck is angling to get back into baseball. So he ain't going to burn any bridges. So of all the things he said in the hour of him speaking, there was one thing that came out 
that I thought A, was fascinating, and B, sent me down a rabbit hole. And that is the question that managers seem to get. And I've talked to Aaron Boone about this. I've talked to Aaron Boone about this off-air and on-air because I've always been fascinated with how much decision-making power do managers have. And I'll tell you what Aaron has told me and clearly what Buck has said, and that is we have a lot of information. There are certainly a lot of conversations with the general manager and with the analytics department, but no, I make the lineup. I make that decision. And I think at the end of the day, I believe the manager that while they're getting a lot of information, maybe their arms are twisted in ways, they ultimately get to make the call. So here's Buck Showalter talking about one analytics advice that he got that is certifiably crazy. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story. And one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data wasabi another boston-based championship team ebay motors is here for the ride remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease fresh installs and a whole lot of love you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own look to your left look to your right it's official no one's got a ride like this there's nothing else that sounds like feels like or looks like the set of wheels in your garage with over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. I love, I love when those guys come in about their uh, load management. <laughs> we had a guy that did a triple and two doubles, and they came in and said he probably needs a day off because he ran too much around the bases. So we didn't tell him, don't get any hits so you can play the next day. I, I, don't, I didn't quite understand that one. Okay, I said, okay, you go out there and tell Brandon Nemo that he's not playing today because he did too well last night. <laughs> so, 
for first of all, I mean, that is insane. If that if that really is the case, that they're saying, you know what? That guy ran around the bases too much. He needs an off day. So listen to what Buck said. Buck, first of all, he gave us the name Brandon Nimmo, but he was very specific. A guy had two triples and a double, and I'm being told by the analytics department, you know what? We should give him an off day the next day. Well, guess what? When I heard Buck tell that story, I got and got real stuck into a vortex. I needed to find out what day this event happened. And it did this event actually happen. Like is Buck talking out of his ass or is Buck citing a real moment? So luckily Buck Showalter only managed the Mets for two years. So I don't have a huge sample size to go through, but I went through 2022 and I went through 2023 and I looked, I said, is there a game in which a guy had two triples and a double in the same game? And then what happened the next day? Did he, did, was he forced to sit the very next day? So I'm looking, I'm like, hey, I got to see, does this exist? Is there a day where that actually happened? And guess what? I found the day. I found the day where this occurred, where a guy had two triples and one double in the same game. And I'm like, all right, well, who was it? Well, the answer is it was Brandon Emmo. So, so Buck was not making it up. It actually happened. And then like, well, did you, did you sit him the next day? And the answer is he played the next day on September 12th of 2023. Brandon Nemo had the day that Buck Showalter described. He had two doubles and a triple. And the following day, he went out and he played. So that was certainly a good sign that Buck Showalter took the advice and said, kiss my ass. Now your follow-up may be, well, how did he do the next day? And the answer is Brandon Emma went one for five. So he'd have the greatest game in the world. <laughs> but then he played the day after that and he went two for four with a double. So it occurred. There was a day where this happened and Buck Showalter, you know, based on the game logs, played the guy the next day. So I don't know if that makes anyone feel better that even if the analytics department is telling you a guy needs to rest because he ran around the bases too much, uh, the manager still has the ability and the power to say, nah, I'm going to play that guy. And the thing that really bothers me about sitting guys is when you sit guys during a hot streak. I think that's the one that bothers me, bothers me the most because I think hotness exists. Like, I don't think that's an anomaly. I think sometimes as a baseball player, you're just in a groove. You know, you're just, you're, you're hot. And I think sitting a guy in the midst of a hot streak makes no sense. I get that guys need off days. Certain guys need off days. Not everybody needs off days though. Like every human is not the same. You know, I was talking about this on the air, evident Tiki in the NBA, where we were discussing Jalen Brunson and his latest injury. And I said to Tiki, I don't think Jalen Brunson needs maintenance days. Like, it sucks he got hurt. It's unfortunate he got hurt. He doesn't need that. But a guy like Joel Embiid does. And I don't mean that now because of his knee injury. I mean that in general. He can't get through a full season. So if a guy can't get through a full season, maybe you've got to be more careful with them. Brandon Nimmo is a fascinating one because Brandon Nimmo, throughout his major league career, could not stay healthy. That was the biggest critique we had of him. You know, Brandon's good when he plays. He gets on base 40% of the time, but man, he just doesn't play enough. And over the last two years, both with Buck Showalter, Brandon Immo played 151 games and played 152 games last year. 
And considering at age 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, he couldn't stay healthy. Why is he healthy at 29 and 30? But Brandon Nimmo showed you over the last two years, he really didn't need maintenance days. Pete Alonso has shown us he doesn't need maintenance days. Francisco Lindor has shown us he doesn't need maintenance days. So I hope with Carlos Mendoza and with a new front office that they're not pushing that. So uh, just to add to your your um, Nimmo theory of like you know hating to have people take days off and whatnot, especially when they're hot. In the month of September, Brandon Nimmo basically played every game, and he went hitless in like in three of them. So to me, I I, I totally get and understand. Yeah. Buck Walter's philosophy. Yeah, and look, I hope that continues. Not every single player is the same. Like, on the Yankees side, Aaron Judge is different. Aaron Judge has had an injury history throughout his major league career. I get why the Yankees may say, hey, once every two weeks, I got to get him off his feet. I got to give him an off day. Like, I get that. I just think every player is different. But I found that interesting, <laughs> especially that Buck, you know, who's basically pee-footing around through everything he says, that's the one thing he'll say. Yeah, they tried to get me to sit Brandon Nimmo after a two-double, one-triple game. And basically, I told the front office to go F themselves. Now, speaking of the front office, David Stearns. Uh, my obsession, and certainly with my beard growing every single day, has remained on Pete Alonzo. I want him to be extended. I want this thing done. I don't want to have to sweat this out in free agency next year. I don't want to deal with trade rumors. I don't want any of that. I want Pete Alonzo to be a career Met. I don't have to argue that. I think it's pretty obvious. The guy's a very reliable player. He plays every day. It's a lot of home runs. He's a very tough player to replace. I don't want to replace him. But I also want him to sign an extension. And I get, well, he's got Scott Boris. He's coming off a year where he 217. Maybe it's not likely that he's going to get that extension now. And I know that. I, that's why my beard continues to grow. It's why I'm already thinking about ways to somehow get out of this beard growth. But David Stearns was asked on the Foul Territory podcast, what the hell's going on? Like, are you going to sign Pete Alonzo? And here's David Stearns' answer, and then we can analyze exactly what he said. Pete's a really good player. Um, he's performed on a big stage here for a long time. Uh, I know that. We all know that. I know how important he is to our fan base. Um yeah, I think what where we are right now, where Pete is, is is we're gonna uh, everyone's gonna focus on this year. Um, the best thing for us is is for Pete to have a great year. And the best thing for Pete is, is for Pete to have a great year. Um, and and then we'll go forward from there. Um, but we're certainly, um, you know, we're, we're we're certainly invested in trying to keep Pete a Met. Um, and I'm hopeful that that over time we'll be able to work that out. All right. So here's the good news and the bad news from that little uh, diatribe from David Stearns. The good news is I genuinely think they're going to try to keep Pete Alonzo as a New York man. Like I didn't get anything out of that that says, yeah, he, he can go screw and we're going to trade him or we're not going to resign him. I didn't get anything out of that. The bad news is really for me personally. And it's for anyone who wants the extension done now. That did not sound like they're even discussing an extension. That sounded as if David Stearns was like, you know what? Why don't you go out and hit 60 home runs? That benefits you. That benefits us because it improves our chances at winning. And then we'll go figure it out. And, and I do think like the old proverbial gun to the head, like, do you think 
the Mets will figure it out with Pete Alonso? I would lean towards yes. I would. I would lean towards this may be a Nimmo situation where we sweat it out, where we're sitting here, you know, a couple of months into the offseason thinking, holy crap, he may leave. Boy, they better keep him. I don't know how they replace him. Things like that. And then ultimately, they keep him. Ultimately, they're the highest bidder. Pete comes home and it all works out. You know, whether you want to compare that to Brandon Nimmo or you want to compare that to Aaron Judge. Yeah, if you're asking me to bet, I still have more confidence he's back than he's gone. But there is a danger in free agency. That's my whole point. And I've made this point about a lot of Met players for many, many years, how when you want a guy on your team long-term and you know it, why not get an extension done before he ever gets to free agency? And I remember screaming about that with Jacob DeGrom. Like, even a year before the Mets signed him to the extension, the year before he was a free agent, I was screaming that. It was actually, believe it or not, after 2017, which was a very average year for DeGrom. Like, it wasn't anything amazing. I remember saying on the radio, you know what? Lock this guy up. Like, what are we doing? And then, of course, he has that dominant, incredibly amazing Cy Young season, and they lock him up, which was great, but his price tag went up. Like, the longer you wait, the price tag goes up. And I felt that way about Jake many years ago. And with Pete, David Wright too, by the way. I don't want to forget that. And I always bring up that David Wright test. Like that extension did not work out, but none of us really regret it because we're just so happy we kept David Wright and he never played for another team. So I'd prefer getting something done early. Unfortunately, when you wait till a year before free agency and the players coming off a year in which he was good, but not his best, it's just not the best time to make a deal. So the beard's going to grow, but I didn't get anything out of David Stearns' comments that would make you think he's not going to be here after this season, that there would be a genuine effort to keep him. And as far as trading him is concerned, like just keep this in mind. The Mets would have to suck. Like There's a few layers to this whole thing. The Mets sucked last year, and they made the decision – all right, this isn't working. Let's sell off pieces. I'm hopeful they're not going to suck. Like, I'm hopeful that those things that didn't break right last year break right this year. Like, I give you two things right off the top that will change this Mets season for the good if they just break right this year. Jeff McNeil and Starling Marte, just those two guys. If those two guys are more closely resembling themselves from 22 than 23, the lineup is dramatically different. Like, all of a sudden, those two guys, along with Pete, along with Brandon Nimmo, along with Lindor, okay, we're cooking. So my hope is the team's good and we're not thinking about trading pieces away. And then look, if the Mets aren't good, it's a more complicated discussion. I would still not want to trade him because I want to re-sign him. Why would I trade a guy um, and then think, because it's a, it's a, it's a fallacy to think, and it's kind of delusional to think, almost a fairy tale to think, that you're going to trade a guy at the deadline and just sign him at the end of the year. It is a very uncommon thing. I know it's happened. I know Aroldis Chapman is the example. It, it is not a common thing. I'll give you a smaller example. David Robertson. Remember how we all assumed, oh, we traded David Robertson to the Marlins, no big deal, we'll sign him? We did sign him. Like, that normally doesn't happen. So I guess this beard's just going to keep growing, Pete, which is uh, <laughs> unfortunately very, very depressing. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, one other thing I want to hit on is Pakoda. The Pakotas came out. And for those that don't know Pakoda, that's the player empirical comparison and optimization test association or something like that. It's not named after former Met Pill Pakoda, the first ever Met position player to pitch. Not the same guy. But the Pakoda is just a prediction. That's really all it is. It's predicting performances for this upcoming season and predicting records for this upcoming season. So it kind of depends how you want to look at it. The Met Pakoda projection was 84 and a half, which right now I think most of us would say, Hey, that's a pretty good year. You win 84 games. You're definitely in a pennant race and maybe you're in the playoffs. And based on the Pakoda rankings, that would be good enough for a playoff spot. So for any Met fan that wants to look at those rankings and feel good, I'll give you 10 seconds to feel good. I'm about to blow it up. Okay, so there's your 10 seconds, 84 and a half. Yay, yay, yay. David Stearns is right. Every Met hater is an idiot. Boom. All right, now here's why it means absolute jack shit. You guys ready? In 2023, our Pakoda was 96. We won 75 games. The Pakoda overrated us by 21 games. 2022, we we overachieved. Our Pakoda was 91. We won 101 games. Obviously, they shortchanged us by 10. So 2022 was a year in which the Pakoda did not give us enough respect. In 2021, our Pakoda was 96. We won 77 games. The Pakoda overrated us by 19 games. 2019 was actually pretty accurate. The Pakoda was 89. We won 86. So only overrated us by three games. 2018, 2018, the Pakoda was 82, and we did not win 82 that year. We won 77 games. In 2017, the Pakoda was 89. We won 70 games. They overrated us by 19 games. So you see, you see what I'm talking about? Like they always overrate us, and it doesn't work. So what's my prediction on the Mets season? I'll give you one. I'll give you one once we're in the midst of spring training. But these Pakoda rankings, I wipe my ass with it. They don't mean anything. I don't even know how they come up with it. I think it's just like, it's just a way to make us like, ooh, baseball's coming. Yay. The Pakoda says we're going to win 90 games. The Pakoda is always wrong. It doesn't mean a damn thing. So good. We got that one out of the way. <laughs> Hopefully I haven't depressed enough people. But now we're going to get more depressing because I, I read a bunch of emails about our rewatch. <laughs> and that means we're talking about game seven of the 2006 NLCS all over again, including Matthew Hamlin, who writes, rewatch the worst game of my life. Yeah, no, I, I feel you, buddy. Matthew Hamlin writes, hey, Evan and Pete. I'm a Mets fan in Atlanta, but I grew up in South Carolina, so I've always lived in Braves country. I was in the seventh grade in 2006. We had the MLB.TV package in order to watch the games, so I spent every night watching games on the computer with my dad. 
Going into that year, I was so confident the Mets would win the World Series. My dad took me out of school early to watch opening day against the Nationals on ESPN. He left my twin sister at school. That was supposed to be our year. When Beltron struck out, I immediately left my parents' room and ran to the bathroom and just cried. Not only did my team lose in heartbreaking fashion, but I had to go back to school where everyone knew my team lost and they would rub it in since all my classmates were Brave fans. This was worse than 2015 because of the time in my life. In seventh grade, all that matters is the Mets. Life responsibilities haven't hit yet. Yes, you still root for your team as you get older, but nothing can compare to that age of fandom. This is why the game will always be the worst game in my life as a Mets fan. Now, I feel that, man. You know, it's it's interesting to compare losses from childhood and losses from when you're older because you're so right about responsibilities and also understanding what matters. Like, I got two sons. Pete's got kids. Obviously, losses as a sports fan, as much as they sting, they're, they're nothing in comparison to what matters. And I think we all acknowledge that. So as a kid, when your team loses, I think of maybe the equivalent to what Matt wrote was game six in 99 against the Braves, where I cried. I'll never forget it. With Kenny Rogers walked Andrew Jones, I, I very quietly left my parents' living room, went upstairs to my bedroom, cried like a baby, because that's all that matters. Like, there was really nothing else as a teenager that mattered. I certainly wasn't getting laid. That wasn't up there. So it was strictly, this is all that matters. But you know what makes the losses more recently painful in a very different kind of way? You know your own mortality and you start to think, holy crap, I'm going to die and I'm never going to see my team win. And that's where the more recent losses are painful in a very different way. Like you could take a step back and realize that in the grand scheme of things, this doesn't matter because you have families and you have responsibilities. But like when the Mets lost in 2015, I remember driving home that night thinking, I'm just never going to see it. Like, that's it. Like, I'm just never going to see this team win a World Series. And I think when you're 16 years old, it's different. Like, there's a little bit more hope. There's a little bit more belief that your team is going to win. I'm laughing only because this is so sad. That's that's really it. Like it's rewatching the game, doing the podcast. It was very, very sad. I, I am starting to think we're going to have to cleanse ourselves with a win. You know, usually we do these rewatches. We do one during the off season, but there has been a thought that, you know, maybe sometime in the depths of spring training when we're sick of watching, you know, number 87 in a non prospect at at bats in the eighth inning that maybe we mix in a win. It's like the drug that makes you feel a little bit better. Uh, Mike Smollins writes, confirmed, worst loss ever. <laughs> While I want to be mad at you for having us rewatch the pain that is the NLCS Game 7 2006, a part of me has always wanted to revisit it just out of morbid curiosity, and you gave me a reason to do it for better or worse. I had very vivid memories of a lot of it, but it was interesting and heartbreaking all over again to see it from start to finish, pitch by pitch. One thing that really stuck out to me was the 2006 lineup, as I just felt nostalgia for a lot of those guys, even if the core was never able to get back to the playoffs again. If only this new playoff format was around back then, perhaps it would have saved us some heartache. I have been through many, many bad losses. The 2000 and 2015 World Series, as a Jet fan, back-to-back -back AFC Championship games, 
leading to the pathetic playoff drought that we were reminded of weekly during the NFL season. And like Hoffman, I'm a Ranger fan. So losing to the Devils in game six of the Eastern Conference Finals in overtime, the Kings in the Cup Final, and especially another heart-wrenching game seven loss to the Lightning the year after the run to the Cup. That said, I can say without a doubt, this is the worst loss I've ever witnessed and the toughest sports loss I've ever been through. It is undoubtedly the most depressed I've ever been after any loss. While the others were tough, this was the only time in my entire life where I truly believed in my heart that the Mets were special and would win it all. As hard as it was to stomach the Yankees parading on our field and the fans turning Shea Stadium into a home victory celebration in 2000, and as absolutely dreadful as the Royals series was, we went into both of those Game 5s trailing 3-1. So as much as I wanted to fool myself, I knew it in my heart it was over. In 2006, the Mets just seemed special. They pulled off miracles all year. It was the anniversary of 86. They were better than the Cardinals, and it just felt as though if they could defeat St. Louis, who I still loathe to this day, they would undoubtedly take out the Tigers, who did us the ultimate favor of taking out the Yankees in round one and sparing us another dreaded Subway World Series. The World Series, not to be, and while the losses outlined above all came with their share of heartache, this one still stings more than anything else. Because like Evan said on the last pod, it just seemed like they were going to win the game. I know it's dramatic, but even reliving it just confirmed to me a part of myself died on October. I don't want to laugh. I feel the same way. I am not laughing at you, man. I'm just feeling the same way when you talk. Let me, let me try that again. I know it's dramatic, but even reliving it, it just confirmed that a part of me died on October 19th, 2006. I will forever be jaded by this loss. I hope to one day witness a World Series win, but I'm not sure it will happen. Yeah, no, I, uh, <laughs> I feel you. I laugh because it's painful. I, because it's painful. He does add, P.S., as much as I love the Rico and understand it's become a passion project, I do miss the monthly post-WWE PLE instant reactions and politely request that an even quicker version of an instant reaction returns. It was nice to get it back for Survivor Series, but nothing after the Rumble. Please bring them back. Thank you. By the way, I love doing that. You know, for a while, I did the Evan Roberts podcast, which featured like some Met reactions, a lot of wrestling, some Nets, and some other things. I think what's stopped me from doing wrestling instant reactions is actually not the Rico. The Rico doesn't really interfere with it. I think what's interfered with it is that my son, my oldest son, is so into wrestling. And so when we watch these PLEs, we're doing it together. And then afterwards, it's difficult to like tell him, hey, now let's do a podcast. I think if he did the podcast with me, and I don't know if he wants to do it, he's only seven, it would be different. So I think what, you know, just to be honest with, with what he said about that, because I had done, you know, I basically did an instant reaction to every wrestling event for three years. No joke. And there, you know, it's once a month. It's nothing crazy. But I did it for years and years and years, and it stopped. And I thought back to, like, why? It coincided with my son just being into it. And I think him being into it has caused me to, you know, watch it with him. And then when it's over, put him to sleep, <laughs> usually, because they end late, as opposed to, to doing a podcast. But I appreciate that. It was fun. I, I do enjoy doing it. Maybe I'll try to do more of them, especially with WrestleMania season coming up. Zach Costello writes, I have to be honest. 
there was a 0% chance I was going to rewatch that game. But I was interested to hear your analysis. Thank you for your take on Jose Valentin. That apparat haunts me more than Beltron's. I also appreciated you pointing out the game two loss. I really felt that that's where the series went awry, and we never really regained control from there. I want your opinion on one thing. I remember leaving Shea Stadium that night. The 83-win Cardinals aren't going to beat Detroit. And B, I didn't think we would have beaten Detroit either, given our injuries. We'll never know about B, but I was sure was wrong about A. Curious what you thought about the 2006 World Series before it started. And at the time, did you feel like the Mets would have been hard-pressed to win if they made it? So I am a very... Yeah, you dream about what's next, but what's next doesn't matter until you accomplish it. And so I know that there's this very common belief that if we had won game seven against St. Louis, we were going to beat the Detroit Tigers and win the World Series. And it's funny, at the time, one of my closest friends, still one of my closest friends, but he doesn't live close anymore, so I unfortunately don't talk to him as often, but this is a guy who I would talk to every day. You know, we would chat every day, we'd hang out every day. We would try to meet women every day, and he was a much better-looking guy, so he would do it, and I wouldn't. <laughs> but he was a diehard Tiger fan. He's from Detroit, like not a, a fake Tiger fan, like a kid who grew up in Detroit, Michigan, Lion fan, Tiger fan, Piston fan, the whole thing. And I remember in the back of my mind thinking, this is going to end our friendship. Like, if we're playing in the World Series, <laughs> this is going to just destroy us because he's a diehard fan i'm a diehard fan and like something's gonna be said and it's just gonna blow up you know it's just gonna end uh but i you know to answer your question i don't know like i think like most met fans i had the confidence in that team to believe that we would beat detroit but i can't sit here especially knowing what happened with you know really so many other world series where you make an assumption and then everything that you expect doesn't happen. I can't say we were going to win the World Series. You know, being a tortured Met fan, the reality is, even if Beltron ropes a double, maybe we find a way to kill ourselves in the World Series. I don't know. Uh, a few years later, the San Francisco Giants played the Texas Rangers in the World Series. I bring it up for this reason. When Texas defeated the Yankees in the ALCS, there was this feeling of, oh my God, the Giants are going to get smoked. They have no chance. Cliff Lee is unhittable. Look at this giant lineup. It's Buster Posey, Cody Ross, and bums. Like, they've got no shot. And then the Giants smoked them. So I've, I've learned too much, and I'm doing this with retrospect because I've seen too much to just assume we were going to beat the Detroit Tigers. So I don't look back at 06 as a guarantee we were going to win the World Series. I, I think it's more, how the hell did we lose a Game 7 at home to the Cardinals? How did we lose a Game 7 at home when Indy Chavez is making one of the great postseason catches you'll ever see? Jared Clark writes, and this is a really good idea by Jared, he's got a rewatch idea. You know, I mentioned that maybe we need to cleanse ourselves by watching a really good win. Well, here's what Jared suggests. First of all, love the podcast, especially the off-season shows where you dive into the nostalgia part of being a Mets fan. Being of similar ages, we have very similar memories of mostly heartbreak. You mentioned doing a rewatch of a past game recently, and I want to cast my vote for what is my favorite regular season game ever, the Matt Franco game. 
July 10th, 1999. Everyone remembers the Matt Franco single in the bottom of the ninth with two outs against Mariano. I remember the entire game being a back-and-forth nail-biter with some kind of excitement in just about every inning. The game has everything a nostalgic Met fan could want. Rick Reed, a Piazza Homer, Benny Agbayani, Turk Wendell, Fonzie, the immortal Rigo Beltran, not Rico Bronia, and, of course, sticking it to Mariano Rivera. It's a good one. Steven Pescudo has another game suggestion. This one's a big one. How about October 3rd, 1999? For those that don't remember, it was the last game of the season against the Pirates, and it was a must-win game. I was 12 years old at the time, and I was a part of the New York Mets fan club. At the beginning of the season, they offered me two tickets to a game from a list of maybe eight different games. I checked out the promotions for each game and determined that since the October 3rd game was the last game of the season, and since it was also Fan Appreciation Day, that was the perfect game to choose. Little did I know that this was going to be one of the most important games of the season. This was my first taste of a playoff atmosphere. And Evan, I think this might have been your first taste too. He is correct, by the way. The crowd, the excitement, it was out of this world and also new to me. And as we all know, making the playoffs has been quite rare for us Met fans. So I've come to cherish moments like these. I hope you consider this game for a future watch along. I really strongly consider that game. Because and, I, and I'll tell you why I give that game more of an edge over the Matt Franco game. We all remember the Matt Franco game. Uh, those of age, obviously. If you are younger, you don't remember it. And I understand that. If you are, I'll try to do the math on this, 30 and over, I would say, 33 and over. The Matt Franco game is very famous. Interleague game, Mets Yankees. The game you're referring to is what I like to call a hidden gem. That game was game 162. For those that don't remember the situation, we were tied for the wild card spot with the Cincinnati Reds. The Reds were playing the Brewers that day in Milwaukee, and they had like a nine-hour rain delay. They would not play their game until like 10 o'clock at night. But what we knew is if we beat the Pirates that day, we're playing a game 163. If the Reds had won, we'd play a one-game playoff with them for the chance to be a wild card team. If the Reds had lost... We win the wild card. We go right to Arizona to take on the Diamondbacks. So you knew win this game, there's a game 163. And it was a very close game. It was a low-scoring game. And it came down to Brad Klontz, a former Met, coming into the game with a runner on third, bottom of the ninth inning, and Mike Piazza at the plate. It was all set up, and he threw a wild pitch. And that's how we won, which was so anticlimactic, but... Yeah, and, and it's funny. I don't remember that much about the game other than what I just said, which was low scoring. I knew the situation, obviously. Low scoring, and we won on a wild pitch. So that's a hidden gem. Maybe we'll chase it with a win. Uh, I'll throw a few win ideas out there, and maybe we'll do one during spring training because I think that will make us all feel a lot better about ourselves. That's for sure. Now, Pete Hoffman has a big announcement to make. Do you remember what the big announcement is, Pete, or did you already forget? Oh, I... I have an announcement, but I don't have the number yet. <laughs> All right. Does that make sense? Give the announcement, and then we'll let you know as an audience when there'll be a number available for the announcement Pete's about to make. Go ahead. So exciting news for all the Rico Bronya fans. Now, if you're tired of, of typing out words to Evan and I, you can now voice your opinion on a voice line. We will have – you can leave your voices – 
and we will react to your voices in the very near future, probably by next podcast. Beautiful. There you go. That was a suggestion, too, in the uh, mailbox. And now we gave it to you. So very, very cool. We appreciate it. We do appreciate the feedback. You subscribing to the podcast, commenting on it. All very much appreciated. You can, you can email us for now, the B at gmail.com, and then we'll let you know when you can start voicemailing us. Thank you very much for listening and downloading another edition of Rico Brody. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. <laughs>